0: Hey there, what are you doing? Just looking at birds. Welcome. I'm your host, Chris. Join me as I interview avid birders to learn more about birds, birding, and those who love both. Today my guest is Ariane Dwarsch-Haus, an avid birder, professional guide, writer, and conservationist. A name you're probably most familiar with for the Guinness World Record he set in 2016 by observing 6,852 bird species across 41 countries in a single year. Not too long ago, his book about this big year, The Big Year That Flew By, was translated from Dutch to English and made available to a broader audience. He also hosts his own podcast focused on birdwatching, The Vogels Podcast." Today, he's here all the way from the Netherlands for the Southeast Arizona Birding Festival. Thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. So, just this morning, you led a field trip here at the festival to Pina Banca Lake and Canyon. Yeah. Uh, can you tell us
1: how that went? Yeah. I came in a day early to get reacquainted with the birds because, yeah, the last time I was birding in the U.S. was in November, actually, visiting family in uh, Los Angeles. Okay. Yeah. But I never birded Arizona. And the last time I birded sort of this biome was in 2016 during my big year and of course that went pretty fast yeah so I came in day early so to do some birding yesterday yeah I got my most wanted bird the Montezuma quill so that's great it was a fantastic morning and also you know I got reacquainted with the sounds and the most common species. Mm-hmm. So, I felt, like, comfortable this morning and I was co-leading, or I was more sort of guest on the tour. Yeah. So, uh, Richard, one of the local, best okay. local birders, he was guiding it. Yeah. And it was, I think, I find just, the, like, um, I really like the whole way, the really friendly way that American birders uh, <laughs> Help each other, and and it's more really laid back vibe yeah. on the tour, and uh, and not so much. Uh, if you go on a tour with me in the Netherlands, it will be very much focused, and we, we, we try to see as many species and uh, yes, and and very fast paced. And and here was very relaxed, and uh, we had nice birding. So my second ever Arizona woodpecker. Okay, and, and just general. Interesting stories about radio colored jaguars and, uh, oh. and about uh, water catchment and environmental issues with the border wall and so sure. I also learned a lot. Yeah, acquired a lot of cool information. That, it's an eventful trip. Yeah, yeah. So definitely, was a very nice trip. Looking forward to the other trips as well.
0: Which one's next?
1: I think I'm going to be in a grassland habitat tomorrow okay. to look for also a potential lifer for me, the Chihuahuan meadowlark, oh. because that didn't exist when I was here in 2016 wow. in the sense that it wasn't a species yet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's received that label now. Yeah, it received that label. Like New species uh, arise all the time now yeah. due to new taxonomic insights. Mm-hmm. And because of that... Because I meticulously kept track of all the subspecies I record during my big year, Sure. I'm nearing seven thousand now in a year. <laughs> yeah, so I can pop a bottle. Uh, <laughs> so it'll be nice to get this one more. <laughs> Pretty soon, yeah, yeah. So let's look back at how you
0: got into birding. Yeah, how did you first get into it?
1: Yeah, so for me, it is basically if I think back hard about like my oldest memories. Yes. It all there's a bird involved. Like I started birding basically from the get-go, so all my oldest memories, like finding an injured cormorant on the beach, bringing mm. it to the with my mother to the animal shelter, or um, that observing my first kingfisher when I was maybe six or seven years old yeah. um, in some park near my house with my grandmother, mm. or like I can vividly remember. Everything bird-related. Even staring through the window at primary school, seeing long-tailed tits. And that must have been like third grade or something. I was like six or seven already. So I always tell people that I started birding maybe when I was eight or nine, but might have been earlier. Sure. And then there was a life-changing event for me, and that was in September Mm -hmm. 1998. So when I was just turned 12. Mm -hmm. And that is when I went to the Pier of Scheveningen on a stormy day because I read in a magazine that you could see seabirds along the coast with northwestern like gale forest winds. Oh. So I went with my mother to the harbor, like we walked to the far end of the pier and there were, I hadn't seen any seabirds besides some gulls, so yeah. but I walked to the other side of the green lighthouse and then sheltered from the wind there was this guy in a green raincoat on a folding chair hunched over telescope. He turned out to, of course, be a bird watch. He was <laughs> looking at seabird. Huh. And that day, I saw my first gannet and my first beautiful, that's a beautiful, immaculate white seabird with a mm. yellowish head. And like I said, a bird, I I I always saw it in books, and I yeah. never thought I could see it ten, 10 minutes from my house. Wow. So I was immediately hooked. And from that point on, I would spend all my spare time and also actually I would actually ditch cool sometimes (laughs) to go birding. I would spend all my spare time counting migratory birds very Mm. obsessively for years and years. And and that is how I I I became like really fanatic from when I was just twelve. So and I'm thirty seven, (laughs) so that's a long, long history of of birding.
0: When you think back to school, mm-hmm. was there good birding near school, or when yeah. you ditched school, did you have
1: to go far? No, the Netherlands, generally speaking, is really good for mig- watching migratory birds. Mm-hmm. We don't have as many species as here in the U.S., mm-hmm. but there are usually very good birding sites. Already, you can basically walk or cycle from your house. Mm. And I grew up in The Hague near the coast. Okay, in even a, uh, in a part of The Hague. At the coast, which is even more difficult to pronounce than my surname. is called (laughs) Scheveningen. (laughs) And there, it's right at the coast. And it's one of the crossroads, biggest crossroads for bird migration. Hmm. And there's a big birding community. So it was one of the best places to grow up for birding. And I grew up 200 meters from the dunes. And the dunes are best for birding in the Netherlands. Hmm. So everything was like... Uh, available for me to yes. become really obsessive.
0: <laughs> it looks like it. Yeah. It sounds like your family members, mother, grandmother, these other people were very encouraging in yeah. this. Did they enjoy birding too, or did they just see you enjoyed it and wanted to encourage it?
1: Yeah, the second. So I'm a only child. Okay. And uh, my parents, they are not birders, but they always encouraged me having a hobby that is like, I think it's every parent's dream to have a kid that <laughs> That is bird watching, yeah. but also for me, it made me also, especially during the first couple of years of high school, I was a bit of a loner mm-hmm. and, and maybe picked on a bit because I had this weird hobby, bird watching, yeah. and and also growing up in a big city, it was not a, a cool thing <laughs> at the time. That, that said, now birding is becoming a cool thing. Yeah, you have a lot of young kids now bird watching, so yeah. I'm really happy about that. But but that was not the case then. So I would when I went birding. And I would cycle back because I, of course, went early. I went out for birding, cycled back, like past my sc- school, sort of. And then always had my binoculars stuck under <laughs> my jacket because yeah. I didn't want to be seen as this dusty old uh, bird watcher. How funny. Uh, yeah. So, so you always had to tuck those away. Huh? Yeah. But my parents always said, no, it's cool. You always have to keep on doing this, this hobby. And I, I never quit birding. Yeah. Also, not during uh, high school, not during university years. And uh, I've been birding. My whole life, more or less, at the same intensity that I'm still bird watching. Yeah. How cool. Do you remember, maybe it was in high school or l- later, where you first
0: met somebody who was a birder and mm-hmm. maybe shared some of their knowledge with you or some of that? Yeah. Like when was the first time you met an experienced birder who well, you got to bird with? That
1: guy, Danny, he told turned out to be his name. Yeah, that was one of those... Moments, but before that, already sometimes when you go to a hide or something, there there's a bird. and I would always ask. Yeah, I like to talk a lot. Yeah. Sure, <laughs> you didn't notice <know> probably, <laughs> <laughs> right? And I would ask continuously questions. Yeah. I would eat information all the time and still do. And really, I really, I absorb information about only very limited subjects: <laughs> birds and food. <laughs> Those there are go. two things I can do. <laughs> I always make. I joke around that when my girlfriend uh, is on holiday, and I accidentally sit on the remote control of the television, and I change some setting. I cannot watch TV for for a week. <laughs> so that is how limited my know my how niche my knowledge is. Oh, yeah. Well, that's
0: okay. Food and birds. It's a <clears throat> pretty good combination.
1: Yeah, it is. Yeah. And I'm sure when you were on
0: those hikes at these different places, those birders probably loved sharing with a young person yeah. who was asking all these questions, yeah, that yeah. curiosity. I'm sure they loved now,
1: it. I asked so many questions that sometimes uh were these funny moments where. Ari, on that. Please, you need to shut up because we also you also need to listen <laughs> to the birds, to the flight calls of the birds. And I was like, "What bird is bigger, a buzzard or a honey buzzard? <laughs> what uh, bird is whiter, a snow bunting or a leftlet long longspur?" Blah blah blah, all the time. Yeah.
0: So it seems like either the first time you discovered Google or eBird must have been wonderful.
1: I it's really bad, but I use a different system than eBird. Okay. It's, we have in the Netherlands we use uh, observation. Okay. Which is similar to a Ebert, similar thing. but everyone uses it in the Netherlands, the Dutch okay. system, and naturally that's why I use it. But Ebert, to be honest, worldwide, yeah, has big advantages. Better mm-hmm. from a especially scientific perspective, yeah.
0: But as a young person, the first time you dipped into that was into observation. No, I
1: wasn't there yet. Not yet. Not when I start. I started with rusty old binoculars and a bird book that <laughs> fell apart. <laughs> Even cameras and all that stuff came later. Later, yeah. like. I, were were ancient times. Yeah? it was the, the 20th century I when see. I started birding. Yeah, I guess Google didn't get big till the early 2000s. No, there was no Google yet. No. So
0: you couldn't just go look up. Is the buzzard bigger no, than? and that <laughs> made
1: birding for me more adventurous. Yeah. It says that I had no uh, clue uh, where um, my favorite bird in the world. I will later talk about that, the great bittern. Mm-hmm. I had no clue for the first two years. I just had no clue where and how to find it, and yeah. it was such a adrenaline rush when i finally found it on my own just randomly so it sounds like
0: there were many people that kind of helped you along this journey to get Mm -hmm. further into birds whether it was the random hikers you encountered denny at the greenhouse your own family members i've heard you in different presentations and interviews mention the importance of sharing nature and birds with young people Can you share with us a particularly memorable time where you had the opportunity to share your love of birds with a young person
1: yeah so my mission in general is i try to make birding as accessible as possible and i also think that the more people appreciate nature and birding at a young age the more people will eventually when they grow up um, start to work for different companies will Think environment and nature is important and and we should preserve it so i think that is really important sure um because in the netherlands there's a lot of really young kids Mm -hmm. uh, now liking bird watching okay they know me from my books and my my podcast and that kind of stuff sure usually they will be in the field and then they they say oh can we take a, like a picture or, a, or a, a, what kind of birds have you seen? And sure. always, always will let them look for the telescope. Like not just take a picture with them, but have a whole conversation. Yeah. Ask them what, what's the best bird you've seen. Share some information and think, oh, I can grow up and become a bird watcher. Like like a, I can be a professional bird watcher. This can sure. actually be a job. This can be a life path. When I got uh, emails or via Instagram, I got mm-hmm. messages from, from young kids asking for tips and advice. I will always answer. And yeah,
0: nice. When you think of some of these encounters, since you've had so many encounters with young people, yeah. do you think you've encountered anyone that had a similar curiosity to yourself?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of them. I think in general, every kid, very young kids is a naturalist. And then. Some kids are lose that interest over over time. Yeah. I think yeah we have a big responsibility to keep that interest going. Yes, but some kids have are, like you already know from the from the beginning that they will be very fanatic. <laughs> they will they will be like future me's. Yes, yeah. they have such an interest. Yeah, and I really I really enjoy that. Like I can one of the things I like most is a fanatic meeting a fanatic young like ten year old bird watcher. Like, Just that, seeing that excitement at yeah, such a young that age. Yeah, true excitement and really big interest in a certain subject. Yeah, I really like that. Yeah. Sure. Today, would it be safe to say that you pursue a lot of rare birds? Uh, no. That is not so. I, it sounds strange for someone who owns the world record and seeing the most different bird species in one year. Yes. But I, in the Netherlands, for instance, I don't twitch. Okay. So I, when a rare bird is reported, even if it's... Very near my house, I will not not go because I really enjoy the excitement of discovering stuff on my own. Yeah, that is one of the joys of birding. Although I must say, when there's a really cool bird that I've never seen in my whole life, it's also the luxury. I've seen <laughs> so many species already, then I will uh, I will want to see it. Make the effort to see it. Yeah, yeah, make the effort to see it. But but. Like I am not necessarily a twitcher. which sounds weird eh? for somebody so so many <laughs> birds. Yeah. Can you define that for us? A twitcher? or is twitching. When, when you know twitching comes from the British word of like twitching. Okay. Twitching your eye. With, yeah. like, nervous twitch. Sure. Because that happens when your your phone goes. Dzz, 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 and You see, oh, there's a like a, a yellow grosbeak reported oh. uh, 100 miles uh, to the east of here, and then you. You get nervous and you feel the urge to jump to your car and go there that 's twitching okay, and i I find it also a bit like uh, being a- addicted yeah it 's an addiction uh, you chase keep on chasing that, yes. and I sort of quit that addic- addiction the addiction of twitching yeah so it 's
0: more about getting into different habitats or environments and just encountering the birds yeah, not I like so the, much the, chasing
1: a specific I think a big part of uh, bird watching is the the element of surprise. Mm-hmm. Like I always tell people when you have a slow day, burning, maybe the weather's not too, it's maybe too hot, that you're always one sighting away from the most incredible day of your entire life. <laughs> so I found the biggest rarities in the Netherlands on the slowest days. Mm. Like like it can always happen. Yeah, There's yeah. always that underlying tension of you can... That you can encounter something amazing. Yeah. That makes being in nature in general amazing. Yeah. So in 2016, you
0: had that massive year. Mm -hmm. You make this world record, you see all these birds. Yeah. Now it's been a number of years since then. What does birding look like now for you? You've talked about a little bit about how
1: you changed your approach to birding a little bit. Yeah. But what does it look
0: like this past year?
1: Well, this past year it changed dramatically okay. because I became a father for yes. the first time. Congratulations. <laughs> Thanks a lot. And, um, I like birding is my, my greatest passion, but now I have less time because it's also my work and I also need to write. And then I also have to take care of my, my newborn uh, daughter. Sure. And I appreciate being out in the field even more. And I, Appreciate the relaxing, more meditative side of bird watching more now than before I became a father, because like just turning off your phone, being out in nature early morning on your own, forgetting about all the stress of working life and sure, yeah. and fatherhood. I learned to appreciate that side of birding more so through becoming a father. You mentioned earlier that on the field trip you
0: went here, yeah. that it was pretty relaxed, laid back. Yeah, very And then relaxed. you made that in contrast to in the Netherlands where they're just go, go, go. Yeah. Would you say that now you are
1: going away from that? Nah. Like <laughs> I, I guide in the Netherlands, always mm-hmm. morning trips, mm-hmm. four hours mm-hmm. always. And then the group size always 12 people. Mm-hmm. And it's also because people always also go with me because the big gear birder and the like the famous a bird watcher in the Netherlands. And then they also want to see as many species <laughs> as possible, find a rarity during the tour. I have to do something amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and that not always happens. So sure. I, but I like to build the tension. So I make like a show out of it. So yeah. I say, okay, guys, the weather today looks pretty okay. Easterly winds, you know, this, this could be the day where we find this rarity on tour. And, you know, last time I had uh, 70 species, but let's try to get 80 species today. <laughs> so I try to make it like a really exciting uh, sure. exciting experience. Yeah.
0: So then that's the professional guide side. Yeah. But then yeah. in your
1: personal time, that might be the time you take that relaxing break. Yeah, and also, I'm, of course, I've seen everything a million times. Yes. So I'm very focused on oddities. And I always hope to find a rare bird from Siberia or from North America. And so it's a different... I don't point out everything, every magpie see? and every J to myself. Yes. Hey, Arjan, there's a magpie. <laughs> oh, hey, that's a magpie. Uh, that's this different.
0: True. When you go birding on your own, what do you usually take with you?
1: Yeah, so obviously uh, my binoculars. Um, actually, I usually, only when I go to a site with waders or, or a waterfowl, or mm-hmm. when I'm uh, guiding, I take my telescope or sea watching. Mm-hmm. But when I go birding in... Like, um, in the Junes or something, I won't bring my scope. Mm -hmm. I have uh, my camera. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I only own a camera since just before my big year. Okay. So, for the first 20 years of my life, I was only uh, with the binoculars. Okay. And the telescope. Okay. And then, uh, well, here I would have a bird book, a field guide. Sure. Like, in netters, I I don't need it. You don't need it. So, I see something really difficult, I will have... Uh, articles or whatever when on my phone. Yeah. yeah. And that's it, basically. And sound recording equipment. I have sound recording equipment running all the time. Like I'm recording nonstop when I'm birding. Hmm. So whenever something weird uh, opens its beak, You'll I will it. have it. <laughs> and then I can on my computer edit it and then have proof of some rare call or whatever. Do you just leave the mic on your shoulder or something? Yeah. Yeah. yeah literally like that on my. Arm, arm okay. strapped to my arm as a recorder. Yeah. And sometimes I also have a parabolic microphone. Okay. But that is that I use on rare occasions when I'm night birding. Mm-hmm. Then I listen with headphones in your swampy area and I can listen to soft songs of crakes or rails that are uh, two kilometers away wow. that I cannot hear with naked ear, ear because sure. it's too far. And then yeah. the parabolic will... Amplify it five times, so and pick up those sounds yeah, so far away. Yeah, and I can hear it through the. So that's <laughs> very high tech. That is very cool, and that's for the very a technical guy, which I am. <laughs> I know. After you mentioned the remote. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is what my girlfriend always says: uh, everything that's bird recording related, you know, and then everything else you don't. So <laughs>
0: so it's related to birds you'll figure it out. Yeah, I'll
1: figure it out if I need it to make myself a better bird watcher, then I'll figure it out. That's fair. camera settings, recording, sound recording. Yeah. But like the remote control of my television, no. No. <laughs> <laughs> when you think of some of these times you've gone, it could be either the
0: professional guiding or a personal time. Can you share with us a memorable encounter with a bird you've had
1: since your big year? Oh, yeah. Oh, so I found um, at the most uh, crazy uh, uh, bird I've ever self-discovered in the Netherlands mm. was after my big year. Okay. It was in 1st uh, of May 2020. I remember that day vividly. We were birding uh, at like a famous migratory hotspot mm-hmm. uh, with a friend of mine, Thijs. Mm. I mean, it was uh, one of those slow mornings. Yeah. And then on the way back to the car, small passerine flushed from the... From the the road, Yeah. sat on top of a bush, aimed the binoculars, was a dark eyed Junko. Here, you, know, you wouldn't look them. twice at a dark eyed Junko, but this is the other side of the Atlantic in the Netherlands. So there are about 65 records in Europe. Oh. So we went crazy. Yeah, oh, dark eyed Junko. And the first 50 pictures were un- unsharp. And then, <laughs> then uh, finally, a good picture he had. So I had to lay down on the ground because. It was too much for me to comprehend that I had found an American (laughs) passerine in uh, the Netherlands. It was my dream to find it one day, and I thought it would never happen. And then it turned out eh, it was a little bit brownish, more brownish on the back. The flanks were a little bit more, more, also more brown in it. And it was a bit weird for a normal first summer meal with Jungo. And I texted Ethan Kistler, who I know very well. In the states, yeah. look at this bird. What do you think? Uh, it turned out to be a cashier junco, which is a oh. integrate between Oregon junco and dark-eyed junco, and it breeds in the Rocky Mountains, hmm. Canadian Rockies, and hmm. winters here, actually, where we are in uh, Arizona. Yeah, and there was the first record of that taxon or, or that 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 bird on uh, our side of the Atlantic. Wow! So yeah, <laughs> that was <laughs> the quite most a memorable sighting. Yeah. <laughs>
0: All right. Now let's move on to our bird segment where my guests have a chance to share a bit about a bird of their choice. And for this episode, Ariane will tell us about the great bittern. Yeah. So
1: I know nothing about this bird. No, because it's not here in the U.S. <laughs> so that's Although a good reason. Although you have an American bittern, and I will also tell you a little bit about that. But the great bittern is my favorite bird. Mm-hmm. And actually, it's such a favorite bird of mine that I just written a children's book about the great bittern. Mm-hmm. About uh, the friendship between a little girl and a great bittern. And I hope you hear more about that after. Yeah. And the great bittern is actually a, a medieval lord who was bewitched and turned to the great bittern. <laughs> it's a fictional story. Okay. And we'll, yeah, it's written in Dutch, but hopefully it will be translated like my first book. Sure. But anyhow, yeah, that shows how much I enjoy this bird. It's a very um, uh, well-camouflaged uh, heron, basically. Mm. A little bit like a green heron. Okay. But uh, bigger, uh, brownish. And it hides in reed beds. Mm. And then the song is really cool. It's a low uh, mist horn like booming sound mm. that can carry five to six kilometers, which is, I think, about three miles. Yeah. Yeah. And that is the furthest carrying bird sound in the world. Wow. Yeah. In spring, it's all morphology changes so by the males can produce that sound so it's really weird bird and it's in the netherlands fairly rare with about 600 breeding pairs only Mm. Um, and it's very secretive many novel bird watchers well struggle a lot to see it for the first time Mm. and as did i as a little kid and only two years into bird watching, fanatic bird watching, yeah. I finally saw one uh. very randomly with my dad. I was walking in the dunes near my house and we were ber- walking along the edge of a small pond. Mm-hmm. And it, like this, because it's a big bird. Yeah. And there was only reed that was maybe knee high. Oh. And it suddenly flushed like two meters in front of us. That shows how well camouflaged it yeah, is. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I like its secretive nature. I like I really enjoy camouflage patterns in birds, mm-hmm. uh, night jars, owls, uh crakes, all that stuff. Yeah, uh, snipes, that's what I like most. And this bird has it all, like rare, secretive, cool sound, and <laughs> yeah. And then so recently for my book, you know, I was sure I was I was uh, studying looking at the YouTube videos of booming bitterns, so that's how you call the the the, 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 the sound that I'm booing to see Exactly how they do it, because I, of course, describe it in yeah. my book. And now I, I came across American bitter, and, okay. and I never thought, what the sound does an American bitter make? Mm-hmm. So I looked up how that bird makes the sound, and then listened to the sound, and that's like my top 10 weirdest bird sounds I've ever heard. Hmm. Like it takes gulps of air, basically. So it goes like... <laughs> Boom. And then goes, it yeah, makes this also and delivers a really weird sort of booming call. That is, yeah, it's just too ridiculous. Hmm. That that, and you can see this bird in uh, North America. Wow, very rare in Arizona, I presume. <laughs> yes, yeah. what parts of North America would you guess um, it might be? Like further north. Where mm-hmm. you have swamp, big swamp areas. Okay, yeah. I saw my only uh, American bittern ever opposite a Walmart, along a, a small pond in uh, in um, near Miami. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I funny. twitched it as, yeah. as you call it. Yeah, during my, my big year, it was a lot of twitching. Yeah.
0: Hmm. So, with this bird, you've talked a little bit about where it's found, where it hides, the mm-hmm. habitat it's in. As something that looks similar to a heron,
1: does it have a diet similar to a heron? Yeah, yeah, it eats mainly fish, small amphibians, that kind of stuff. But it, it will also eat baby birds and uh, and mice and that kind of stuff. Yeah, same uh, uh, diet as a heron. as a as a great blue heron. Yeah, okay, more or less.
0: When you first saw that one as a child, did you know what it was right away?
1: Or did yeah, you yeah, immediately, because I've I, I saw it a million times in the, and and what is the funny thing? Back then, when I was a little kid, I would sometimes, if I really want to see a bird, I would make a a painting. Mm -hmm. I would do a painting from a a photo or bird book, and then paint the whole habitat. So I could paint the great bittern, uh, reed bed, um, some mudflats, and then I painted (laughs) some birds that also occur in the habitat, like a bearded reedling and a water rail. And that night before, I had made a whole oh. painting of a great bit, and then we saw the next day as if it was meant to be <laughs> extra special. And that painting is still in my uh, in a little glass uh, frame frame yeah. in my parents' house oh, in cool. the toilet. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Sounds like an impressive level of detail for the painting, being yeah. environmentally accurate <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> with the birds that are present. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, uh, I can imagine as a young person, having gone through all that effort, painting that picture, then yeah. the next day you go bird yeah, to yeah. see it, how excited you might yeah, be. Yeah, yeah, I was, yeah. So you talked about how it might mm. camouflage itself in reeds. Mm. What are ways to identify it? If you saw, aside from the booming call, yeah. if I see
1: one, what might I pay attention to to identify that? Yeah, it is very large, mm-hmm. or large is, like a buzzard-sized or hawk-sized bird mm-hmm. with deep wing beats and very rounded wings. Mm-hmm. And very rich brown color. So as a novel birder, you might for a split second think, hey, is this an owl or something? Big owl that's flying there during the day? Then you see this, yeah, like a great blue heron that is like pressed (laughs) from bill to legs together a bit. Then you see that shape that's very, very obvious. And it's very long toes and nails because it creeps through the reeds to balance itself, so... It looks like there's a, like a, a bundle of twigs behind <laughs> For it. For a hand, yeah, <laughs> and then, yeah, you will immediately know. It's not difficult to read. Yeah. And when you see them, are you usually seeing them alone in a yeah, smaller? Yeah, they're very region? solitary. Yeah, maybe never saw two bitterns together. Hmm. Yeah. Have you ever encountered a nest? No, no, no very few people do. That's We're, how secret it. I saw it even. In all my birding years, I only once saw it actually make producing the sound, saw it booming. Oh, so it's like a like a Scottish blow, like a yeah, yeah. bagpipes, bagpipes. Yeah, like it, it takes all bag of air and then it took with it all its body presses out sound. Yeah. And you can
0: watch its body decompress. Yeah, you yeah, you can
1: see it. Yeah, it's really cool. Wow. Yeah. And and the American bittern does something similar. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: So then seeing that one, you probably haven't seen a nest. Do you know where they typically nest? Do they nest in Yeah, in reed, reed beds. Okay. in In
1: in thick old reed beds, because mm. it makes a big nest and needs thick reeds. Yeah.
0: So then have you ever seen a juvenile?
1: Yeah, I've seen juveniles. I've found many times a territory. Yeah. Sold juvenile birds. Yes. But like recently fledged, never chicks. Oh, okay. Yeah.
0: All right, now let's move away from the bittern and move on to your book yeah the first was it your first book
1: yeah yeah so i've i've now written three books okay but they're all in dutch yes as was this book correct i read i I wrote it in uh 2017 through 18 Mm -hmm. came out uh may 2018 in the netherlands and it was translated and published may 2022 Mm -hmm. is it yeah Last year, yeah. Yeah, last year. Yeah, as as in, as in just a recent, a recently, like I told you, recently became dead and my, my, my head became sick. <laughs> with those yeah, dates. Forget everything, <laughs> yeah. So with that book, it
0: was translated into English May yeah. last year. Yeah. So even more people are reading this book. What do you hope
1: people take away from reading this? Well, several things. Um, hopefully, because um, I, r- I wrote a, a lot, because uh, like... To explain a bit, a big year is also you travel for a whole year. So, so it's not the most environmental-friendly thing to do while you are also all the time looking at birds. It's a bit contradictory there. Yeah. So what I did, besides offsetting my carbon footprint through Carbon Offset Program, I raised uh, money uh, and did a big promotional campaign for the Bird Life Preventing Extinctions Program, mm-hmm. which is... Uh, yeah, and, uh, um, a conservation program initiated by the biggest bird, cons- um, like um, conservation group. Yeah, conservation group in the world, okay. BirdLife International. Hmm. And it's where Audubon collaborates with, and you know, basically Audubon is the American version sure. of BirdLife. And uh, this program aims to protecting the most critically endangered birds from extinction. Okay, that's basically what it does. And because I did this fundraiser, I also Interviewed a lot of conservationists that I came across. I um, wrote specifically about these conservation programs and conservation issues so of course, in a year, I witnessed eighty five percent of all the ecosystems in the world, but everywhere mm. I went, I saw destruction. Mm. And I was burning in the Philippines all day long twenty four Seven, uh, 360 degrees around us. You could hear chainsaws destroying the last lowland rainforest on on the Mindanao, the island in the Philippines. Um, vast, clear cut areas. They call the, the arc of deforestation on the Mm. southern part of the, the Amazon basin. Mm. Like things like that. Yeah. And I wrote a lot about that to show people. That what's happening in the world sure. and then also emphasized all the fantastic initiatives that are there both small and, and large to counteract those threats to what I think is everything like mm. threatens mankind as well. So that is uh, in my book a lot. So not only covering your big year, but
0: also covering some of these observations you made.
1: A lot about the, how much birding means to me as a hobby. So many chapters in the book are not about my big year, but like I look back at how I started with birding and how it became so obsessive to do a big year. Yeah. So so I try to play with the chronology a bit and. Make it in, in not just a big trip report. Yes. But actually a book that is hopefully nice to read.
0: More interesting to read. <laughs> I hope so.
1: I hope people will enjoy it. I and, look forward uh, to reading it. And, and so far, uh, I got good reviews in the Netherlands and I did, it did, it did well for a book that is niche about bird watching. Yes. But here in America, in America, the re- response is really great so far. And also I think Americans like records and, <laughs> and they like big adventures and and that's what it is a big year and and that is really nice to see like really great response to the book so far so yeah really happy about that yeah also here at the festival yeah yes people are already reading it they bought it yesterday already reading it (laughs)
0: yes (laughs) and then we go from that book to your next book which is quite different very different yeah Uh, it's a book
1: catered to children so I'm guessing it has a lot more pictures yeah that's we illustrate it Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's very illustrated by by uh, one of my favorite bir- um, or children's book illustrators in okay. the Netherlands. Yeah, nice, but very different. It's fiction, mm-hmm. uh, but with a lot of non-fictional information, because mm-hmm. I think that's the best way to, like, Slip by telling stories <laughs> though, to make people enthusiastic or kids enthusiastic for burning. And of course, the main character is a great bittern, because mm-hmm. uh, that nobody knows a great bittern if you're not a bird watcher. So it's also yeah. to popularize my favorite bird. And what is funny, I thought I was a pretty okay uh, writer mm-hmm. uh, when I wrote my first book. But yeah. I, then I got a publisher and an editor. Ah, first chapter, everything came back red. <laughs> I thought I, was, I just sold the story, but I couldn't write yet. So I learned that through my first book. And mm-hmm. what I found out is that I really enjoyed writing. Mm. And, and, and and I became better at it. And then second book I wrote will never be translated because it focuses on the Netherlands and okay. then conservation issues in the Netherlands and, yes. and more complex uh, info. I had to do a re- lot of research and very different again. Yes. But again, I enjoyed writing, but I thought it lacked something. And that was like, I really like uh, using my imagination and yeah, coming up with funny words. And, and that I could all place put in a children's book. So then I got a deal book deal with a children's book uh, publisher in the Netherlands. And now uh, I, I've written this crazy book about friendship between a little girl and a great bittern, who's actually, like I told you, a medieval lord. Yes. <laughs> Who is bewitched. And it's a coming-of-age story about the bittern. And the uh, funny, like I think I'm really happy with the... So the great bittern, he's a bit bitter of what happened to him. Yes. Like he's been living in the swamp for 400 years. <laughs> and he really dislikes the migratory birds that come in spring. So he hates the blue throats and the reed worms. And, of course, he's a bit symbolic for the angry Twitter guy who <laughs> who hates the, the, uh, the immigrants coming in. Oh. And then through the girl who knows everything about migratory birds, and migratory birds are her favorite bird, hmm. he learns a lot about them and learns to appreciate them and sees how important they are for his ecosystem and yeah. the long, dangerous journey that they have to undertake and the incredible beauty of migration. So it also changes his whole personality. So it's a coming-of-age story of a great bitter. <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> and it sounds like kids have a lot to relate to there, to connect yeah. with. And I
1: also want the adults that will read it, hopefully, to their kids. Sure, will Also, it's a bit of a mirror to... To older people to be more tolerant to uh, and and be more happy with yourself yes that is, so there's a lot of sublimal, subliminal, sublimal, yeah, subliminal yeah. messages in yeah. the book I try sure. to really write something original and weird and yeah
0: and hoping to provoke that thought yeah, that yeah I think that's reader. really important
1: I like the the children's book that I like most were always where you had some layers yes. and, and layeredness in it and and yeah, that, and you learn something from it. Yeah, because so that's my new adventure, basically.
0: Yeah, because with most children books, as the father, you're going to be reading that book every night for yeah. a number of days. Hopefully. So it's nice to have the layers. Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and not just a uh, because they first wanted me to write a book where it's just like blocks of information and yes. photos of the birth, but I want to write something original. So yeah.
0: you can have some that fiction
1: element. Exactly. Yeah. Before you go,
0: can you tell our listeners what you're up to this fall and where they can find this book when it releases?
1: Yeah. Well, that will take a long time because okay. it, I write it in Dutch. Yes. And it will be published in November. Okay. In the Netherlands. And then it needs to do well before I can even think about maybe convincing a, an, a foreign publisher sure. to uh, translate. And then if by some golden chance it will be translated in into american i have to of course change all the bird names into american oh, birds and fit. then change the ecological background stories and so it will take years so there's a lot
0: more modifications than a simple translation if,
1: if this book will be ever in your hands here in the states some miracle needs to happen <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> that's basically so yeah. <laughs> So, after you release. So, it's easy for, easier for you to learn Dutch than for him to, to get the book translated. <laughs> okay. yeah. And you know how difficult Dutch is. Now. Yes, after all the practice we yeah, had with your exactly. last name yeah, off the air.
0: Exactly. Okay, so your new children's book release is in November. So, yeah. then what's next after that?
1: Yeah, so my new big thing, my main thing basically is my podcast. Okay. Because so that really took off during COVID times. And yeah. now we are approaching 4 million streams. Wow. Which is for. Yeah, for a podcast in That's the Netherlands only. <laughs> yes. Huge. So we became the biggest nature podcast in the Netherlands, and we have a really solid fan base. Mm-hmm. So to illustrate, uh, uh, about one and a half months ago, we went nine days with 30 of fans of our podcast on a research vessel uh, around Spitsbergen. Mm-hmm. which is the island, the archipelago north of Norway, mm-hmm. uh, looking for polar bears and belugas and blue whales and ivory gulls, And that shows how, uh, how far we got with the yes. podcast. And now we are going, doing a new season, but we're also building this whole platform, like an ecosystem for beginning birdwatchers. Oh. Birdwatchers that just started birding and don't know yeah, how to connect with other birders. And we're basically building sort of a, a community we actually now have someone a community manager uh um a lady who was a huge fan of our podcast mm-hmm. and became now our first employee <laughs> so oh, nice. she's she's managing our community and yeah. so we I'm s- sort of yeah I started basically organically a podcast kind of company so yeah. so that will will be a main thing um hopefully I will Write another children's book. I plan to write a, a series of mm. Barry the Bitter. that's the American translation. probably okay. Um, a series of, of children's books. Um, still I do some guiding, but I'm less and less guiding and more and more content building. Yeah. yeah. Or these and, creative pursuits. Yeah. Creative pursuits. We're thinking about doing a theater tour with our uh, podcast. Mm. And I've, oh, pff, I almost forgot for the last two years, I've been with a, professional film crew filming a like a four part uh, nature documentary about uh, bird watching and birding in the Netherlands. Okay. Uh, filming 120 different species mm. and with our own music put in and like we worked for two years mm. on that. We're now Hoping to get that on television in the Netherlands in uh, around Christmas this year, so we are in the, the negotiating stages. Stages with uh, broadcasting companies. Yeah.
0: Now, with that two years of footage, is there a great bittern in there? There is. Yeah, we have <laughs> fantastic
1: footage of great bittern uh, hunting and uh, yeah, not booming and not nesting, but we have really good footage of great bittern. Yeah. That'll be neat to see. Yes. So now, with this massive community
0: you're building with your podcast and these other endeavors, yeah. Maybe there's some kids in high school who are going to be cool when they go looking at birds.
1: Yeah. And like that is also, maybe it's like from that loneliness when I was a little kid and the hope of being cool with my, why do other kids not find bird watching as cool as I find bird watching? I hope that indeed young kids in the Netherlands and hopefully also in anywhere can proudly wear the binoculars to school and do bird watching during during breaks and yeah yes
0: i'd like to thank Ariane for joining us today and i'd like to thank you for listening to this episode if you enjoyed the podcast please follow or subscribe and while you're there please leave a rating or review to help more people discover the podcast for pictures of the great bittern please visit at looking at birds podcast on instagram until next time keep looking at birds